welcome to another episode of the Disability History Association podcast. I'm Caroline Leifers. And I'm Kelsey Henry. And it's our pleasure today to be in conversation with Martin Atherton. Martin, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you very much for asking me. It's a pleasure to be here. Martin, your LinkedIn profile, which I very much enjoyed reading, says that you are a, quote, man of leisure. But we know that you've, of course, had a very long career. You've had many different kinds of jobs before academia, in academia. And now that you're retired, I know your work has also hardly ended. So can you tell us a little bit about your sort of career trajectory and what you're doing today? Uh, yeah, it's a um, little bit unusual, I suppose. Um, I was thinking about the, the man of leisure bit this morning because you know, I, I thought that because I'm retired now. I don't, I don't have to clock in or turn up to work. But actually, a lot of my research has been about leisure as well. And I hadn't seen the, the, the synchronicity of that. And oh, oh, how clever am I when I saw that? <laughs> that but, um, yeah, I, um, I retired in 2018. I was course leader for uh, British Sign Language and Deaf Studies at the University of Central Lancashire in Preston, which is in the northwest of England. Um, having previously been a student on the course, so that was a bit strange to go from being student on the course to course leader, um, which doesn't mean I was a boss, it just meant I dealt with all the admin side of it. And my, uh, my colleague Lynn was, was my boss and still is. In fact, I call her boss to this day. That's the word, which is my term of affection for her. Because um, I went to university when I was 38. Um, as a mature student, very mature student. Uh, but, and prior to that, I had been a lorry driver for 18 years, a truck driver in North American parlance. Um, I went, I, I went to, I messed up my, what we call in, uh, in the UK, my uh, O-levels, sort of my high school qualifications. I messed them up at 16, so I had to go, when I was going to college, I had to redo them rather than do the A-levels, which are the next level. Um, and I, I, I sorted them out, and, uh, but I got a job for the summer with my, uh, with my auntie's then husband. He got me a job. He was a lorry driver and he got me a job with him. And that summer job lasted 12 years. As I never went back to university, uh, to college. Um, and so I was lorry driver for 18 years. I was made redundant in 1985. I was out of work for a year. Then I got another job that lasted five years, then another job. But I had a series of um, back injuries, uh, and which were the result of knee injuries. Not being able to bend and lift properly. I was bent because my knees were gone. I was bending with a bent back, which meant I damaged my back. So in 19, oh dear me, 1991, I gave up work um, and I became um, a house husband. <laughs> I hated that phrase. I became a primary parent. My wife had been a civil servant. She went back to civil service. She'd been bringing up the kids for 10 years. Um, so I stayed at home, looked after the kids and thought, I need to retrain. So when the youngest one was got to school age, I was going to go to college. So the year before, what am I going to do? I need to do something. Um, and I need to break the, 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 the surface tension of as a, as a, what was I then, 37, 36, going back to college amongst all these 16, 17, 18-year-olds. What's this old guy doing here? So I looked for a course that's something I'd never done before. So a British Sign Language course, a basic introductory course. And I thought, I've never done that before. I went and did that. And I found I had an aptitude for it. So the following year, when I went to college full time, 
to do the equivalent of A-levels, I carried on my uh, sign language. At the very same time, I started in September, and in October, the university in the town where I live, Central Lancashire, which is 20 minutes walk from my house, announced that they're starting um, a deaf studies course. The sign language is probably to hopefully train some more interpreters. So I thought, that sounds like something new. That's something I can do. It doesn't matter if my knees and my back are shot. I can do that. So I applied. It was a new course. I was a mature student, so I got on. Started when I was 38, graduated three years later, and then spent a year working as a support worker with deaf students. Because one of my lecturers, talk about dominoes falling and being lucky. One of my lecturers wanted to set up a research project, which became the Deaf United project into deaf football. And he thought I'd be ideal for it. So he spent a year finding the funding and setting that up while I worked as a support worker at the university with deaf students, going into lectures, supporting them with uh, written work and things like that. Uh, and then I became a member of staff and that lasted 20 years. So it's domino, 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 domino. Um, I did my PhD in 2002 at the Montford in Leicester into uh, deaf leisure and sport. And, and then I retired. <laughs> so that's, that's, my, that's my career in a, in a nutshell. A big nutshell, but a nutshell. Um, Martin, thank you so much for uh, walking us through the many like unexpected twists and turns of your careers. Really, there have been multiple um, multiple spaces in which you've worked and learned over the years. And it's so exciting to hear from someone who has a more unconventional path into academia. Um, I'm wondering if you can tell us a bit about what you've noticed um, through the years as you've taught British Sign Language and worked in deaf studies. Um, what are the major changes or areas of growth that you've noticed in the field since you got started? Oh, now that's a good question. So we look, we're going back, we're right back to when I first started as a part-time British Sign Language student, which was, good Lord, 30 years ago. Thank you for that reminder. <laughs> oh, no, it wasn't. No, it wasn't 30 years ago. It's okay. It wasn't few. It was only 28. Um, I think one of the things is that sign language is much more obvious nowadays. You see it on television all the time in Preston because they've attracted so many deaf students. You see students wandering around all the time, waving their hands. Not all of them deaf. So it becomes an accepted part of life, which is one of the very important first steps, I think, to change and acceptance. Um, attitudes towards deaf people are still quite negative. They're challenged all the time, which is good. But I think there's still this inbuilt resistance to the idea of deafness being anything other than a disability that hasn't gone away uh, and the, the sort of all the the equality legislation itself doesn't help with that because one of the specific things that's named in the uk legislation about um, disability is deafness so deafness is a disability so the, the, the this social model shall we call it challenge it being, being uh, challenging perceptions is still an ongoing thing. But I think that the, there's much more acceptance of deaf people around. You see, sometimes um, uh, at the beginning of an academic year, you'd, you'd see suddenly get an influx of students and you'd see young children mucking and stirring and maybe pointing and the parents going, I don't know. But 
that was that's because of interest, not because of anything wrong or different. And they see, you know, they have sign language on, on children's television now. They have uh, somebody called Mr. Tumble, who speaks on signs all the time. So the kids get it from the early age that this is just a different way of being. And that is the biggest change, I think, that the, uh, an acceptance of this, this different way of being, which still has a long way to go, but we started the process. Um, this is not a question um, that we sent along to you, but it came up for me when you were talking about the ways that sign language has sort of traveled into uh, the mainstream. It's become more visible. You mentioned children. Um, I've worked with a lot of infants and young children in various capacities, and I noticed something in the United States. I wonder if you've noticed it in the UK of parents, regardless of if uh, their child is deaf or not, will use sign language um, as a kind of a, like rudimentary language with their babies um, before they're able to talk. I've seen, I've seen parents start doing that, like incorporating baby sign language, various kinds of signing into infant education. And I'm curious if you've, if you've seen that too. Oh yeah, it, it, it seems to have gone a bit quiet over here. It probably still happens. In fact, my, um, my second granddaughter just changed, turned four. Oh. They use it at nursery. So she'd come home and she'd, she'd just want to think. The interesting thing about that for me is parents will use baby sign with their hearing children, but not with their deaf children. Mm. That's the real, that I can't understand why that happened. You know? But part of that is, of course, this still happens. You must not teach your children to sign if they're deaf. They'll never learn to speak. I remember when my first granddaughter was born, uh, she just turned 12 now. Uh, she was born in the local hospital in Preston. And there were signs up everywhere in the maternity unit about having an audiology test. Mm -hmm. And they effectively wouldn't let her take Amy home. My daughter won't let her take her home until she'd had a radiology test. Now, what's that telling you? We need to check if there's something wrong. You know, yeah, something wrong with your child. But, but then to use something, seeing the benefits of using sign language with hearing kids to help them develop language, but not with deaf kids, does not make any sense to me whatsoever. You know, it's, it's almost banned and there's, there's very little services for parents to deaf children to learn sign language and use sign language you know well you've got baby sign use that there's a point let's start from that if nothing else you know so, yeah so that's a that convoluted answer but yeah that, that's it, it is a, a weird situation where, where it, 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 it's fine for hearing kids but not deaf kids very strange it is really strange and i wonder if it has something to do with just the complexities of, of stigma. Definitely. Uh, it's okay to use sign language with hearing kids because they can still hear and they can still develop normally. You know, but if you use it with sign, if you use it with your deaf children and all they can do is sign, then how are they going to get on in the world? I, 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 one of the things I used to do um, with my first years, I used to show them a series of films, feature films, just mainstream films with deaf characters. And the first one was from 1950, 1951. And you get right to the end in the attitudes in the, in the 2000 and somethings, the underlying attitudes were still the same, still the same all the way through, you know, poor deaf child, I oh, can't communicate. And the, the last one, a film called Dear Frankie, oh, it's a wonderful film if you want to see it. It's a real 
really nice film. But at the end, the, deaf, the main deaf character is a, is a young boy, uh, and he's less younger than 10, but he, he's the one who has the advantage over everybody else. He's the only one who can see what's going on and communicate what's going on with other people. You know, everybody else is so tied up with what they say and what they don't say, and he's just watching the world. Thanks. Um, but, but otherwise, all the attitudes are still the same, still the same. And if you'd gone back 20, 30, 40 years before that, you'd probably seen the same thing happen. Yeah, it is stig very much stigma. Yeah. I'm wondering if you could say a little bit more. You mentioned that when you got into British Sign Language, part of what drew you to it was that you found that you had quite an aptitude for it. Um, but I'm wondering what were some of the other factors um, that drew you deeper into disability and deaf history after you started learning British Sign Language? What hooked you? Well, I've always been interested in history from being a young, a young boy. So that was there. And then I got into this deaf studies world. And um, the whole basis for my thesis, that uh, when I did my PhD in 2002, 2005, the whole basis for that was yeah, people keep telling me deaf clubs are important to the deaf community and that they are the hubs of the deaf community. So what went on there? Uh, oh, well, they did storytelling and they went on outings. Nobody knew. This really, really important centres of the deaf community and nobody could tell you what went on there. So that was the basis of my PhD, to be quite honest. That's how it, so I went, right, we're going to find out. So um, for a while, I was probably the world's expert because nobody else had bothered looking. <laughs> the only person who'd ever done it, I was about to be the expert. That, that was the motivation for it. And it, it was simply about wanting to know more about, about deaf people and deaf life and to put some flesh on these bones that were being given. You know, because a lot of the, the literature that you, you look nowadays, it's, you might call it the classic stuff from the 80s and 90s. There's not a lot of new perspectives come out in recent years, you know, you, um, so, uh, and there, there aren't, are there new perspectives? That, yes, there are, um, but there's all these other areas that already exist that we need to know a lot more about. So that's what I did with um, the Deaf United stuff, the first thing I did, and the Deaf Community and Culture uh, that was based on my, on, my, on my thesis. Well, it is my thesis, to be honest, because I didn't write my thesis as a thesis, I wrote this book. I didn't want to write a thesis with a, findings chapter and a, and a literature review chapter. I couldn't do it. I couldn't do it. There were nine chapters in it. I think seven of them were literature reviews or five of them because it's such a broad scope and sort of multidisciplinary. Um, and the one, I've just, the one I've just finished, that again is about, okay, what, what, what can I find out about these people who are in plain sight, but they're hidden in plain sight? Everybody knows somebody's dead. We can see deaf people on television. We know about famous deaf people. But what do we know about ordinary deaf people? What do we know about the, 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 the nuts and bolts of deaf daily life? You know, I can probably find out more. I think I, I wrote it in, in one of the things I did. We can find out more about a, 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 an indigenous tribe in Papua New Guinea than we can about the deaf club just down the road or the deaf people who live in this town or whatever, you know. Because anthropologists have gone out and researched them, but I'm not saying that we should take the same approach with deaf people, treat them as, there's, a, there's an interesting world out there that we don't know about. And the people themselves don't know about it. That was, the, was a, 
the, the, the driving factor for me is you can go and ask deaf people what was important about deaf cons. And they can't really tell you without somebody pointing out to them what you did this, this, and this. Oh, yeah, that, that, and that, and that. So, uh, yeah, it was, it, was, it, was a, it was a natural progression, I suppose. Being interested in history and, and naturally curious or nosy, whichever term you want to use, uh, I want to find out more about people's lives. Well, I think that's how a lot of the best projects start, right? It's just with that natural curiosity. It sounds like there's a, a lot more work yet to be done in deaf history, but I'm curious about kind of the landscape of this field, if you will. Um, is it a growing field? Have you noticed that there's more sort of public or popular attention being paid to it? Are there now documentary films out about deaf history that wouldn't have been made 30 years ago. I'm curious about sort of your take on the development of this field, where it might be going. There's a lot more than there was, but there's not a lot, I think is the best way to describe it. Um, and, and part of that, of course, is because a lot of the history doesn't come from within the deaf community itself. So there's been some work in developing uh, visual deaf history working on, on video, visual resources and things like that, and presenting in, in, in sign language, which is great. It's one of the tensions in, in, in the work I've done is that it's not accessible to the vast majority of people that I'm writing about. And it's, not, it's simply not practical to make it accessible. So that is, that is a real frustration. Um, there is a British Deaf History Society in this country, which is, I think, um, and I know many people involved in that. I don't think they'll mind me saying there's a certain demographic um, and that demographic is getting older every year. There's not a lot of young people coming in. That's partly linked to the de decline of the deaf club and the, the splintering of the deaf community, as I, as I see it. Um, or the, the multitude of deaf communities there are now rather than one. Um, and, but there's, there's more people getting interested in and, and doing more work and Every little, bit, every little bit of work that's done or every book that comes out, every chapter, it's helping to build a bigger picture. It's like having a 10,000-piece 10, jigsaw, and we've got about 150 at the minute. But we're getting a rough idea, you know. Um, it's, but it is such a fascinating field. One of the other issues about problems with it, though, is the lack of primary resources. Because deaf clubs haven't kept the records, by and large. Deaf schools haven't kept the records. There was a deaf school in Preston, and the original, I did it. In fact, when I was a, a student, you know, you asked me, Kelsey, about how I got into this. I actually made a video history of the local deaf school. Um, I, I wrote it and filmed it, but I got a local deaf man that I know, Len, Len Hodgson. I got him to present it in sign language because it was about his school and he'd been there. But that school closed in the 90s. Um, and the building was left empty and it's now been knocked down. Just before it was knocked down, somebody broke in just to have a look at it, not to do any damage. He couldn't do any damage. Right? And they found records just strewn all over the floor, sort of filing cabinets full of the history of the school and all. No one knows what they were, but it, it was about the school and they're all on the floor and all the, rain, the rain, roof had gone, so all the rain had destroyed them all. And, and I, was at, <clears throat> I was at another talking to somebody else and they said that, when another deaf school had moved from the original site to a, uh, a new site, they'd just thrown all the 
fifth work in the bin in, into a skip and got rid of it. And you think, yeah. So it's down to individual memories, which are unreliable. It's down to any mementos people might have. And it's down to luck, people having access to things and getting hold of them. So a lot of it is history by outsiders, history by people like me, looking in from the outside and, and interpreting what's there. Because um, another of the, the, the issues as well is not many deaf people are trained as historians. They might be very enthusiastic amateur, amateurs, but they are amateurs, you know. Um, and some of the stuff I've used for the latest book, it's so annoying because you read things and it's not referenced, so you can't follow it up. <laughs> oh, this happened. Yes, but who told you that? Where did you find it out? So you can't follow it up because it's really interesting. I want to know more about that. Um, and also sometimes you, you read things and you think, actually, that's not, no, that's not right. There's plenty of evidence to show that that is actually some, another reason for that. But, um, but you, you, know, you take it as it is and you, you make the best that you can with it, don't you? Really? So. Thank you so much, Martin. I, I have so many questions for you about uh, just the fragility of memory, uh, what you were describing in terms of piecing together deaf history um, um, and using like the complexities of using oral history, um, working alongside amateur deaf historians. There's just so much richness here. Um, mm -hmm. I'm so excited to hear more throughout the course of our conversation. But first, I, I wanted to get a little bit more background information uh, just for our listeners. Um, in the United States, uh, oralist training, so educating deaf students through an oral language of lip reading, uh, speech, uh, mimicking mouth shapes, dominated in most deaf schools until well into the 20th century. And I want to know, is this the case in the UK as well or, or not? Yes, it is. Um, and no, it isn't <clears throat> at the same time, just to be awkward. Um, Yes, it was throughout, particularly in the post-war period, since, the, the, since 1945, um, there was a real push for oral education. The signed education was still provided, but it was very much for oral failures. And I, those children who were so deaf that they couldn't make use of the available technology in terms of hearing aids to learn to speak adequately, um, they couldn't uh, lip read, Particularly well, so it was it was the last best option. So anybody who who was deaf who who then became proficient at, at, at good at speaking, passed his hearing, shall we say, they were the successes. Anybody who used sign language, sign language was almost our bless. Those poor deafies can't do anything, can't be normal, you know, and and there's a whole thrust of education within that. But the reason why I say it's not that is there's all this, um, I, I'm going to use the word because I, I do use it when I'm not in public, but there's so much propaganda about the Milan Congress of 1880 that all sign language was banned in schools. Well, in the UK, that wasn't the case. Milan was 1880. The Royal Cross School in Preston, or the Murray Cross School as it was at the time, opened in 1893 with a mixture of signing and hearing classes, the signing and oral classes. So it wasn't banned. And the work I've done on 1901 shows that deaf schools still had signing classes. 
it hadn't gone down the line of oral good signing bad. Well, that's what happened later on. But and and the the, um, the I've seen the head teachers' reports from the Royal Cross School in Preston and the Manchester School, um, the big the big school in Manchester, and they 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 clearly state that they don't differentiate. It's whichever method was best for the individual pupil was the one they got. But that all changed, particularly after the after the, the Second World War, the introduction of the welfare state in, 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 in the UK, and the idea of doing the best for everybody, post-war reconstruction. So what's the best thing you can do for these poor deaf kids? Teach them to speak. And there's the, there's the famous work of Reuben Conrad from 78, is it? I'm a historian and I don't do dates. Reuben Conrad's work into the, um, uh, the, the, the literacy and, and speech of deaf children that showed basically they were un, the vast majority were unintelligible. They, they had at best the, the reading age when they were leaving school of a seven or eight year old. That's a failure of oral education. And what seems to happen to me all the time, educationalists in this country start from the wrong first principle. The, 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 the first principle for all education should be what do these children need? In deaf education, it's how can we make the education fit for these kids? Oh, Bolton interpreter on. Fine, thanks a lot. You know, we'll, we'll show a CSW in, in a class with them, or we'll give them a language tutor. No, start from, right, what do we want to teach these kids? This. That's fair enough. How are we going to teach them? What do they need? Start from there and work backwards. Don't start with this is what, this is what we do. How can we make these, these round pegs fit into the square, the square hole, you know. This is something as a parent and a grandparent um, really annoys me. And my children aren't deaf, or my grandchildren aren't deaf. But it doesn't matter, it's the same first principle. It should apply to all kids. You know, it doesn't matter who they are. We do it with kids from uh, other countries who, who maybe not initially uh, English speakers over here. You know, you, you teach them English first. You don't teach them in English, you teach them English. And then as the, the, the proficiency develops, you, know, you don't teach deaf kids sign language, you teach them a language they cannot access. You teach them in a language they can't access. Or you give them access to that language through a third person. But if they haven't got that third person, how are they going to access it? You know, this is, I mean, I'm not an educationalist, but that seems to me like a faulty system. And I think the outcomes of deaf education Sure, that it's either the kids who can who can can function best in an oral environment who do well, or the ones who are very lucky in in, in many ways. I mean, I used to. I remember I had a student a few years ago, um, a deaf student, and the first time I saw a piece of his written work, I thought he's no way he's he hasn't written this. He can't do it. His English is too good. His English is better than mine, almost. I thought you can't possibly have written this. So I went along to my boss and said, uh, I've got some concerns about this, boss. And she said, oh, yeah, I know who that is. Fourth generation deaf. He'd been taught English via sign language, and his English level was up there. And that was all the justification you need for sign language for deaf kids. There's your educational outcome. And he got a degree at the end of it, and he's done really well and gone into education himself and blah, blah, blah. 
but it was such a justification for what what you should be doing, not what we do, you know. And he was, I said, by, by saying by, you've got to be lucky, he was lucky in that he had four, three generations of deafness before him who'd been through all these struggles and knew exactly what would work and gave him that, and it did work. So, you know, he's a shining example, and I've seen others since, very, very similar. You know, deaf of deaf, or deaf of deaf, or deaf of deaf, or deaf, or whatever, who've, who've been taught this foreign language that you need for everyday success in this country, to be taught that foreign language of English through their natural first language. So we've got plenty of evidence it works, but apparently we don't know what we're talking about. Yeah. Uh, I, I can absolutely see what you're saying about how the education system's misplaced priorities have basically set many students up to fail, right? And I also, um, yeah, just want to, again, sort of underline that point that you've made that's really important about needing to research individual schools, individual practices to fully appreciate the complexities of the history of deaf education. So, yeah, that, that's a really important point. We want to talk about your 2012 book, Deafness, Community and Culture in Britain, Leisure, or to use a American slash Canadian pronunciation, Leisure and Cohesion, 1945 to 95. Uh, we both loved this book, thought it was really fascinating. It covers a range of issues, so we'll be kind of unpacking it throughout our conversation. But one thing that I, of course, noticed straight away was your choice not to capitalize the word deaf in this book. Uh -huh. And many of us, of course, struggle with this issue, right? Especially when we're writing about communities that are uh, heterogeneous or they don't explicitly define as capital D deaf. What do we do with this history? And you talk a bit about your choice in the book. So obviously we refer people to that. They should read that. But can you talk us a little bit through your thought process there and how you came to that decision? Yeah, I came across it. Obviously, first one was, was an undergraduate. I'd never come across it before. And I immediately thought I had, this, I, I had issues with it. Um, at first, I thought it was, I just didn't agree with it. I've changed my position, obviously, that I can see that it served uh, a useful political purpose. These people are different. This is why. The, the reason I don't use it, I've never used it, except in direct quotations when I feel like it's not my place to figure it out. The reason I don't use it is you're allocating an identity to somebody without checking. Oh, oh, look, him. He uses sign language all the time and he's active in politics and blah, blah, blah. He's big D deaf. And my response to that was very obvious. And, and one of the defining moments for me was when I was doing my very first research project, um, paid research project, which is uh, the Deaf United um, project. I went to interview a guy who was a, a deaf footballer, a deaf soccer player, to use a North American term. And we got on like a house on fire. He was much older than me. We, we had a great time. And he was a pillar of the deaf community. He signed, but he, his wife was hearing and he spoke with her. But all his deaf friends he signed, he taught all his children to sign, and his grandchildren learned to sign to, to speak to granddad, even though he could speak to them. He was a member of his local deaf club, he was very active, he was recognised as, uh, as a deaf man and, and, and well respected for that. So I said to him in the course of his conversation, well, his name was Ray. I said, uh, so are you big D deaf, Ray? You know, I would never sign out and ask him. And he said, what do you mean? I said, well, when, if you were writing about yourself as deaf, would you put a, a capital D or a little D? And Ray's answer summed it all up for me. He said, 
Well, it would depend whether it was the beginning of a sentence or not. As a grassroots deaf person, it meant absolutely nothing to him at all. So I think it's, an, it's important in academia and it's important in deaf politics. In deaf life, it doesn't really, to most deaf people, it doesn't mean anything. Because I've asked other deaf people since and they've never heard of it, you know, when I've been doing various things. And they, oh, that's, oh, oh, I might start doing that now. Knowing full well they probably won't, <laughs> you know. But, but Ray's answer just summed up everything I've been thinking and feeling. And so I, I just don't feel right saying, Bang. In, in some respects, it's a bit like saying, um, okay, you're, you're a successful woman, a successful independent woman, and you do this, you do that. Oh, you must be a feminist. I'll call you a feminist. Or I'll call you a woman with a capital W or whatever. You know, um, it's almost, it, it, but it's more than that for me. You know, that's a little bit flippant that, you know, but it's, it's sort of, we do label people too easily. And I think for a big D death, it doesn't, it doesn't sum things up because nobody's big D deaf all the time. And funny, the guy I was talking about before, the guy who's very good English, um, I had this conversation with him once because I used to have this very same conversation with students all the time. And I said to him, uh, are you big D deaf or not? Oh, big D, big D, big D, proud. And I said, have you always been big D? And went, um, no, maybe not. No, not when I was younger. I said, but you're big D now. Yeah, yeah. And I said, is that D ever going to get any bigger? Because he was heavily involved in deaf politics. And he said, oh. He said, yeah, maybe one day I might have to be deaf. He said, but double D. <laughs> he got me points, which was great for me. He got me point, whereas quite often students just go, oh, you can't say that. You can't say something not big D. That, oh. You know, the hearing students particularly. But him being a deaf person himself, he got the point I was making. And I thought, yeah, this is... This is valid. I totally understand that people don't agree with it. I think it's wrong. But it's a personal opinion. That's all it is. And it's not meant, if I use uh, a lowercase d, it's not being disrespectful to anybody. It's just, it's an audiological fact. That's not disputable. The, the identity thing, it's wrong of me to go, bang, this must be you. And that, that's why I do it. Yeah. Quite a long answer, but I've, I've had this debate so many times that I've, quite, <laughs> I've got quite nuanced at it now. What struck me was that it boils down to kind of best practice in terms of his, like historical conventions. Like what you said about not wanting to impose an identity on your social actors, your historical actors, taking the categories that they use to classify themselves seriously. You, you could make the argument that that's just, it's best practice in history um, for respecting your actors. And I hadn't heard, I, I've heard various historians and academics work through their reasoning for why they capitalized the D or not. And I've never heard someone say exactly what you just said. Um, well, I, I also had the advantage when I was doing that of being older and to be quite honest, not caring. Because in, in, this is my opinion. Everybody else in the world can think it's wrong. And I accept that. But it's my opinion. And this is why. You know, and that, that's the, the fact that I can explain my, my opinion, even if people don't accept, accept my, my reasoning, that's fine. But I've got a reason. It's not just because I can't be bothered. You know, and I think that helps in, in, some, in some respects, you know. 
but yeah, it's, it's, I think it's wrong to label people. I was also thinking while you were talking about how there's a conversation in disability studies and disability history about the difference between being politically or culturally disabled and descriptively disabled. Mm -hmm. How whether or not you fall into either one of those categories in terms of self-identifying as disabled um, shouldn't determine whether or not your history and your story belongs in disability studies or dis mm -hmm. um, so that's something that I was also hearing you working through in your in your response. Well, I, I had a situation once. Pardon <clears throat> me. As, <clears throat> as I said earlier, I've got some trouble with my back and my knees. And I was having particularly for about three years, I had some real problems with my knees. I was in pain every day and very grumpy from result of it, whatever. And I was in some I can't remember what the context was. It was at work when I was at university. And um, it was some sort of training thing. And one of these things where you're all in and out, I can have to go around and say, you know, and say one thing is about yourself. And I was on a particularly bad day. I was in a lot of pain. Didn't want to be in this thing. And I came around to watch Martin Atherton and I'm a cripple. Oh, my Lord. The pin pulled out the hand grenade. The whole room was, you can't possibly say that, blah, 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 blah. Blah, 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 blah. What about blah, 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 blah? What about this? What about... I said, what? You mean like my mother who's in a wheelchair? I said, I said, I can call myself what I want. And I used the term crippled because that's how I feel. I feel crippled. I'm crippled with pain. I can't walk properly, blah, blah, blah. Do not tell me I can't call myself that. This was not the best way to start a training day. <laughs> it really wasn't. But that's how I self-identify. And said, what if somebody else called you that? I said, well, if they knew my circumstances, it wouldn't bother me in the least. And But the whole day was just then, I was ostracized for the rest of the day because it was something to do with equality. And I just wasn't loud. I was being disrespectful and blah, blah, blah. And then we came to the end of the day and we're in this horseshoe again. And everybody took go around. Um, Tell me what you're doing for the weekend. Uh, and one thing you've learned today. So all these people are high up and they're all going, oh, we're going, we're, we're going pony trekking in the late district. Or we're going canoeing in the Dales, blah, blah. And it was, a, it was on a Friday, and the following day was an open day at the university. So I'm ticked off. And I said, um, well, I'll be working tomorrow to earn money, to, to, to bring money in to pay for all your wages while you're off Galavanti, because I was really annoyed with them. And I said, and I've also learned not, not to describe myself as a cripple. And I go, oh, in front of people who are not prepared to accept anybody calling themselves what they want, Funny enough, nobody said goodbye to me at the end of that thing. But it, it sort of, it taps in with this self-identification and the throwing labels at people. You know, I would never ever call anybody else crippled, but I reserve the right to call myself if I want to, or anything I want, you know, within reason, um, as long as it's not offensive to, to other people. I'll never use an offensive term. But this automatic resistance, so you can't call yourself that. So, and, and I, I do remember, Questioning the, the person who ran it was a very nice guy. And he said to me afterwards, he said, Why do you choose that term? I said, Well, what, what should I, how, how else should I describe myself? So, mobility challenged, you know, uh, 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 pain, pain free challenged, whatever ridiculous things I said, you know, I'll come up with one or two. But I, I think you've got the exact right to call yourself what you want, but you haven't got the right to call anybody else that. And, and, and that was, again, fundamental to everything I've done since, and that you don't 
just lump something onto somebody. And, and, but you also accept the right for anybody to call themselves whatever they want, whatever they want at all, you know. Anyway, I shall get off my high horse now, <laughs> get off my soapbox. So I'll just go down a bit now. <laughs> Love your the insights from your soapbox. <laughs> well, I I've been going off off script a bit, and I do want to hear more about uh, deafness community and culture. Um, specifically, I want to hear more about the deaf clubs because they've come up a couple of times so far <laughs> in the conversation, and I want you to tell us more about them. Um, there were numerous deaf clubs across the country. What are they? And um, what did people actually do at a deaf club? Like, what happened to them? Um, they were basically social clubs. Um, and they grew out of the, um, the Voluntary Welfare Association that sprang up in Great Britain from the early 19th century. So you get the, 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 um, the, 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 a lot of philanthropy setting up these, these organizations to assist deaf people or, and to support them in finding work um, uh, and dealing with everyday life. And so what happens, you've got a place suddenly and they were by and large run by um, religious groups, particularly the Church of England, the Anglicans in, in Britain. Because um, one of the things they did was provide church services at the weekend, quite often in sign language. They knew their audience. They knew how to, how to save these souls. You can't save somebody's soul by getting them to pray, so you get them to sign instead. Um, but what happened was you suddenly got a place where, as a deaf person, you go along for assistance, a, a system that eventually developed called the missionaries, because these were missions to deaf people. Um, but you have these welfare associations. They're all over the country in every large town, every city. And you go along there for, for, for somebody you can communicate with, and they can help you with all sorts of problems in life. While you're there, there's another deaf person there. Or there's two other people deaf. So you've suddenly got a place where you know you can go along and meet other deaf people and deal with some of the day-to-day -day isolation from people you can communicate with. As a result of that, formal, uh, firstly informal, then formal social arms, branches of these associations sprang up. Um, and so it's an extension of the philanthropy. It develops into a deaf club where you can go and meet other deaf people, go along once, twice a week, and just, I've argued somewhere, possibly in, I think it was in that book, I can't remember, I can't remember what I've written, I'll just write stuff. Um, yeah, it was in that book, that actually life in a deaf club was normal life for deaf people. Because all of us, we, we live our daily lives, and then we go and do something that's abnormal, whether it's abseiling down a rock face or going to a nightclub or whatever, whatever it is, we escape from daily life by doing something different. For deaf people, their daily life was abnormal. They didn't have all the social interactions, what stuff we're doing now with the hearing majority. You know, there might not be another deaf person in their family, in their neighborhood, even in a big part of the town. So they've not got all this, this, this uh, facet communication going on. And, and uh, the water cooler moments, as we call them, and, and all, the, all the stuff that oils daily life. When they went to a deaf club, the sort of thing that's abnormal for us, it became normal. Because they can live a normal life. They can, they can chat with people. They can relax. They can talk about subjects 
that they share a common interests. And then on the back of that, then they start, they start going on outings. They do all sorts of things. Um, they have sporting events. They have social events. They do all sorts of things that they see in the hearing world, like Easter bonnet competitions, you know, or fundraising events for all sorts of things. In the 70s, when sponsored, sponsored events were huge in this country, you know, I found an example of um, one deaf club um, doing a sponsored piano smash. That was a big thing here for a few years, smashing up an old piano with a sledgehammer and getting sponsored for doing it. But the deaf club did it. And they, did, they didn't do anything differently than hearing people did, but they did it as a group, deaf people. I found an example of Preston Deaf Club organising a cruise around the, Caribbean, around the Mediterranean. And what I argued was 160 people from Preston Deaf Club went on a cruise ship. That cruise ship became the Deaf Club. Because the Deaf Club isn't a place, it's the people, it's the things you do. So it, it's, it's the SS Deaf Club going around the Mediterranean. You know. There's nothing different. It was just the way they did. And it was the purpose it served. It gave deaf people um, a normal life, a chance of a normal life, a little window, as, a, as opposed to the sort of thing we would think of as every pretty much a normal life, an abnormal life. Yeah, so they were all over the country, everywhere had them. Um, they've gone into serious decline since the 1970s because the missioner um, was often the person who ran the deaf club as well. Um, so the, the, the role, and, and lots of deaf clubs were effectively British Deaf Association branches. They were the same place. Um, the branch within the club, the club was a branch. Same people ran the club and they were the BDA representatives. Um, they used to, what I used for that book was British Deaf News because a lot of the clubs used to send reports in every month to British Deaf News about what they've been up to and, and all the activities, things about the members. And there were no boundaries, some of them, you know. Oh, one of our members, Caroline, is, uh, broke her leg last week. She fell downstairs and dropped all the shopping. But she's getting better now, you know. <laughs> or, um, or uh, oh, congratulations to Kelsey, who's just had triplets. You know, there, there was no boundaries at all. And it's just quite, sometimes quite personal information, you know. One of our members has uh, just bought a new car and crashed it on the first day he got it. You know, the, but it showed for me, it showed the importance of club life, but also the idea that you've got this network of deaf clubs. Well, actually, they're all one big deaf club because you're feeding your news in, and people at the other end of the country have never met you, but you're, in, you're able to engage in that life sort of vicariously, but you can engage in that life simply for reading about other deaf clubs and deaf clubs. Um, deaf clubs might go on a trip somewhere. They might go on to, an, an, to an outing to a zoo or something. You know, nowadays it might be Disney World or something like that. But as part of the trip, they would visit the local deaf club, or they'd visit another deaf club on the way back. So they've, they've, all, they've gone themselves, and they're using it as an opportunity to meet other deaf people. And there's all sorts of interesting things. Something just popped into my head. I'll come back in a minute. But um, so they, they do all that, uh, and then quite often somebody would film the outing with a sort of you know 16 millimeter camera, so they'd be filming away with it, and then the next week they'd show the film in the club, so the people who couldn't go on the trip could take part in it. Well, the people who've been in it can remember and they'd all laugh and joke at each other. They all laugh, you know, 
and they're watching people. But one of the things I, 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 uh, I did find out when I was doing the, the, the sport, and it comes up in the uh, commuting culture as well, was I was two, two very old ladies who were uh, best friends, and they were lovely. And um, I was when I was doing the, the, the deaf football, the deaf soccer one, and um, I said to them, oh, did, did you go on these trips? Were you into Oh, yeah, we all used to go on these trips. We always used to go on these trips. Because one deaf club would play another deaf club at football. And it might mean going to the other end of the country. It was a major adventure that they'd go. Oh, so you're really interested in football? No, not interested at all. I said, well, why did you go on these trips? Oh, all the good fellas in our club were taken. To use a British expression, they were on the pole. <laughs> they, were, they, were, they were looking for some decent fellas. To, to, and you get stories about people meeting on these trips and marrying them. Uh, it just shows the sort of, Insular nature of the community, but also the, the, the wonderful connectedness of it that they do things like that. You know, they travel six, seven hours on a coach one way on the off chance of meeting a nice bloke, and then six and seven hours back. <laughs> it was, uh, <coughs> yeah, it was, it was, they were, they were at the heart of the deaf community. But then in the late 1970s, the whole social welfare agenda changed here, and they brought in social workers, social workers for deaf people. And when, <coughs> pardon me, when you've got a social worker, social worker then has case laws. Social worker has to keep records. Social worker cannot be, I mean, the missioners were very paternalistic, but the deaf people didn't care because they made life easy. I've got this, I've got this bill and it's in red, what they would do with it. I'll sort that for you. Social workers couldn't do that and they became much more distant. A lot of the missioners became social workers, but they couldn't work in the same way. And part of that, the missioners, were no longer involved in the deaf clubs to the same extent. Deaf people had to take over running them themselves. And many of them had no experience and couldn't do it. And membership declined. Memberships getting older, younger deaf people are coming, gradually becoming more politicized. They don't want to go and sit, sit with the old people in the deaf clubs. They want to do their own stuff. They start going to pubs, which deaf people have not done a, a huge amount of. And, and the period of decline, I think the deaf clubs are still a fair few around, but nothing like they used to be. And it'd be interesting to see if they survive, because they are very much, I think the ones who've survived, are the ones who've engaged with younger people more. But if the younger people don't stay engaged, then they're just going to disappear, as so many things, uh, you know, so many things, you know. One of the, 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 the um, things I found very interesting was um, uh, Putnam, I can't remember his first name now, Putnam is uh, bowling alone when he looks at the, the decline of, 10 pin bowling in America when everybody used to go along and do it socially and eventually just one person on their own bowling you know all the social networks are broken and people stop going then and they gradually decline and become something different and that's very similar to what's happened with the deaf clubs very Robert Putnam I remembered it and yeah he, um, his work on that was very interesting to read and in the context of deaf clubs exactly the same you know when you haven't got the social benefits from going anymore you stop going and if you stop going then all decline in the clothes for most of them anyway that's really interesting the sort of downward spiral effect right mm -hmm. and maybe if they bring back piano smashes that'll help restore <laughs> some of the membership <laughs> <laughs> but sounds like fun
You talk a lot in your book about sport, or I guess as Americans or Canadians would say it's sports with an S, right? <laughs> I mean, can you talk a little bit more about some of the examples of deaf sport? You've already brought up football, but I mean, were there whole leagues for deaf communities? I mean, what? Just say more about this. It's fascinating. Yeah, yeah, the word, the, um, well, we'll start with football because there was, it, well, there was a deaf football league for quite a while, but, but the problem is you've not got a steady stream of players because you're not guaranteed that deaf people in your area are going to be born or they're going to be male interested in football or female interested in football so it's very much hit and miss it's like that all the time going up and down uh, there were leagues there was a, a still is the british test sports council they organized all sorts of things so there are athletic meetings uh, a bit of cricket in summer not a huge amount a little bit of rugby in wales probably rugby you should need lots of people 15 a side game, so, and it's very technically complicated. Every deaf club, every deaf club had a snooker table. Everyone. Now, and I don't know why, but I think I know why. I've got no evidence, but I think there's two reasons. One was snooker is a very visual game. You've got all the colors and it's very easy to learn. You can learn it by watching. You put, you put a red, you put another colour. You put a red, when that colour's gone, you put it back on. It's very easy to learn just by watching it. The other thing was snooker in this country used to have a very bad reputation. If you were good at snooker, it was a sign of a misspent youth. This is when I was growing up. Because snooker halls were smoky, dark places where disreputable people hung out. People who, who didn't have anything better to do with their life. So they used to hang about there. And I think part of it was the missioners made sure there was a snooker table so the deaf people weren't going to the snooker hall. They were in the deaf club and they could be socially monitored. They could, their morals could be monitored. Now, I've got no evidence for that at all, but just simply the fact that everybody had one. Everywhere had one. And it seems to me, given the reputation for snooker halls, that this was part of their um, paternalistic protection of deaf people, I think. Uh, but there were also there were gymnastics events, there were uh, swimming events. Um, there's, a, there's, a, there's actually a, a, a British Deaf Golf Association. But one of the things I've argued is that, that the deaf clubs and deaf life was essentially working class. The things they did were, were working class because you don't find very many people from the higher social classes, shall we say, who are sign language users because they pay for private education or they pay for tutors or whatever, you know, or they send children, they will mask the deafness. Um, that's come up again in the 1901 work that I've done, that you don't find people outside working class communities who our class does in that terminology, deaf and dumb. You just don't find them. So they're very much working class and golf in England is not a working class game. In Scotland, it's more of a working class game. So I don't know whether who who these deaf golfers were but i suspect it was maybe not it was deaf without being usually signing i don't know but I'd, i couldn't find enough information to say one way or another but, but most of the sports what you think is as as working class sports um and a lot of involvement a lot of involvement but again in all of them very patchy about when they continued when they didn't when, when they carried on up here in, in the north uh where we um You've heard of bowling, not 
not temping bowling, but um, they, they, they bowl in Canada. I don't know about America. On a, on a flat green, what you call lawn bowls, I think they call it. Yeah. Around here in the northwest of England and, and, and Yorkshire, it's crown green. It's different. There's a, there's a hump in the middle of the green. Um, and there was a lot of deaf, deaf people because it was, it was local and hearing family members would bowl, deaf people went along. And it's again, it's easy to learn, very easy to learn by watching bowls, very easy. So a lot of that, it was all down to local accessibility as much as anything else. And I think deaf kids being taken along by hearing parents or siblings to certain events and, and certain types of sport, they get involved in that. Very hit and miss, very hit and miss. So again, long answer. Everything that you just said, Martin, about uh, kind of the highly localized, uh, class-based specificity um, of the social activities that went on in these deaf clubs made me wonder about uh, like regional, kind of the regional character of mm -hmm. the deaf clubs that you researched. Um, in the book, you give a, quite a lot of attention to the Northwest part of England. And I'm wondering, why did you choose this region in particular? And did you find anything uh, unique about the uh, deaf leisure culture in this part of the country that really attracted you? Reasons for picking the Northwest. Yeah. Um, I'm from the Northwest. I live in the Northwest. <laughs> I know the Northwest, but also uh, the Northwest that were part of the part of sitting around Lancashire and Manchester and into York, um, the, the western parts of Yorkshire. It's um, either very rural, agriculture producing, or highly industrialized. And in the highly industrialized, lots of deaf clubs close together, lots of networks. Other parts of the country a bit more dissipated. But round here, lots and lots going on. So round here, there was probably more going on in the Northwest in terms of deaf social activity than there was in London because there were more deaf clubs in the Northwest. You know, you'd have one, there's one here in Preston. There's one at Lancaster, 15 miles north. There's one at Blackburn, 15 miles east, well, less than 15 miles east. One at Chorley, seven or eight miles south. Then you've got Wigan, Lee, Bolton, all these places that won't be much to you. Rochdale, Manchester. Got loads of them, Liverpool, Birkenhead. So it's very easy to have this network of going and visiting other deaf clubs without having to travel hours and hours and hours. People still did, but you've got such a lot of interaction and you find out every week there's something going on in these deaf clubs. Every week. They're, they're having, and, and it was international as well, particularly around here. So you get deaf people coming over from Germany. So they're not doing anything differently. They're coming over visiting the tourists. And they go and visit a local deaf club wherever they are, or they travel around. I found an instance of two deaf guys from Germany who came over every year and visited deaf clubs in the Northwest, including some right up in Cumbria, which is, you know, at the end of the world's longest cul-de-sac. You know, they're up there, up around Whitehaven and working around that way. Very sort of socially isolated, really hard to get to in the, in the 50s and 60s. But they're going there. and so. There was so much. I think that the, the main cultural identifier for the Northwest was there was so much going on. It wasn't hugely different than what was going on in other parts of the country. There was just more of it. And it was so much easier to do. You know? um, even more so than in the big cities, in Birmingham, in, 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 I say in London and places like that, 
over in the Yorkshire in Leeds and Bradford. Um, much more going on here because it was just so easy, so easy to do. And cheap as well, which is another factor, is all self-financing. Yeah, I mean, that makes perfect sense. Uh, you've already um, alluded to this a little bit, but we're interested in just like even more detail about some of what was happening in the sports world uh, in the deaf community. Were there, for example, a lot of women who were participating, um, a lot of veterans? I'm interested in some of the backgrounds of specific people who might've been participating and if the demographics are sort of shifting over time. Very little female involvement. In, in sport, um, some, some in football, some in gymnastics, table tennis, um, but nothing like as much. It was more, it was more male dominated this sport. Um, yes, there were, there were deaf women in, involved in sport, but nothing like the same extent. Nothing. And I think part of that was maybe to do with social, social situation, you know, Certain things were acceptable and certain weren't. Others weren't, maybe. But then you've got to have access. You know, you've you've got to have have the 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 the, the opportunity to try a sport and then be interested in it and then have some degree of proficiency. I mean, you don't have to be any good at it to, to take part in it. But I think that was that seemed to be a bit more of a barrier for women than for men. Simply, I say that simply based on on the 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 participation rates. You know. Um, when you say veterans, what do you mean by veterans? Well, I was wondering if, for example, after World War II, perhaps there were a lot of like deafened soldiers or something like that who would have joined these clubs. I'm just sort of trying to think about those changes that might have happened. Yeah, I thought I thought it was a sort of North American understanding of veterans. Yeah, I thought they meant former servicemen. Um, not really, because um, people who were deafened, particularly by you know, uh, by by war, by trauma, and so on, weren't the sort of constituency of deaf clubs because they weren't sign language users. You know, they were hearing people who couldn't hear anymore, rather than deaf people. There were deaf people who use sign language, um, so there's not a lot of evidence of that at all. Um, and I certainly didn't see any explicit references to it. Um, but I think also the, the the as we said earlier about about the the uh, education, I think there was a lot of emphasis on fixing these damaged servicemen, getting them back to as much normality as possible. I think going along to a deaf club would, would, would have gone completely against that. That would be almost an acceptance of their deafness and their, what's the phrase, their otherness beyond the physical. Um, and I don't think, I don't know whether they'd have found any or, or been prepared to find any benefit in going. I think they'd have been accepted, but um, I don't know whether they'd, they'd had the, the mental preparation to, to, to be ready for that sort of environment because they would have been very much outsiders and, and would have been welcomed in and would, you know, could have learned would have learned sign language much quicker than many other people simply by using it all the time. But um, no, not a lot of, of evidence of that at all. That's really interesting. I mean, the questions of identity and stigma that we've already been talking about a bit are very much front and center here. So yeah, what you're saying makes a lot of sense. So I'm wondering if we took uh, these deaf clubs as sort of a 
a window or an entry point into a larger narrative about deaf history. Um, what might they tell us about identity formation, autonomy, as spaces for destigmatizing deafness? Did they function in that way? Um, and particularly when you were saying that they were primarily spaces for working class people. I'm wondering, did they double as sites for activism? Um, were they, uh, were any kinds of activism that came out of these clubs grounded in a sort of class consciousness? Uh, yeah, I think those are some questions that are coming up for me. Yeah, I think on the class consciousness, I think class in itself wasn't an overt element of deaf activism. Class, in terms of lower class, upper class, was replaced by deaf. You know, are you working class? No, I'm deaf class, almost. That's what, you know, but very unconsciously, not conscious at all. Um, but yeah, absolutely central to the whole idea of deaf community and deaf identity, deaf, acti deaf activism. Because otherwise, where else is this going to happen? It's not. It's not. You, you get your, your introduction to deaf identity in the deaf schools, where everybody's the same. And despite all the, the, the attempts to ban sign language outside the classroom, everybody signs. <laughs> and everybody, everybody, is, everybody lives a deaf person, lives as a deaf person. Then you finish school, what happens? You go, you go home, which vast majority did, they went back home. Quite often not fitting in at home because they've been away for years. Some maybe very briefly spent some holidays at home, some hardly any, but they go back home. So where's your real family? The missioner, when they were missioners, they sort of they take responsibility for you. They're going to find you a job. And they're going to introduce you to the deaf club and you meet other deaf people. And they become your surrogate family. Particularly if you can't communicate at home with the hearing family and you've got no real bonds with them because you've, you've hardly seen them for years at end, you know, you've suddenly got a, a, you've got a different family. So that family is the community. The community is the family. The community does things together. So that's their identity. It's all circular, you know. Um, you, you self-perpetuating almost, you get in that. And then as a result of that, you get together. And what do people do when they get together? They complain. <laughs> They get together and they can play. And, people, and some people will say, something must be done. And somebody else will say, yes, it must. Get on with it. Because that's also something we're very good at doing, isn't it? Saying something must be done and leaving somebody else to it. But people will rise up and they become activists. And they take other people with them. Not all of them, but some of them. And so younger people or other people become activated through these people who want to make change. So it's absolutely central to it. The, the, the whole idea of... of of identity and about deaf pride and about deaf politics and social justice, it's all bedded in the clubs. That, the clubs have gone away, but that hasn't because that is now, it, it's inculcated in deaf life. That, you know, um, young deaf people don't take any, don't talk any, I'll, I won't say it, but they don't take any, you know. Um, they're not as compliant as, as uh, older generations, but the older generations went, did all that, they built that up particularly through the, the 70s and the 80s, as deaf clubs quite sort of ironically went into decline because deaf people were running them themselves, 
the deaf people are running and became we're politically active simply by running the deaf club by doing something that was outside the mainstream i used to say to my students on the course simply by signing up for a deaf studies course you have become politically involved in the deaf community you are politically active because you're on this course you don't have the you just you, your name is on you know it's going to be on your degree certificate at the end that means you're in, you're involved in, in the activities of the deaf world and, and the activism of the deaf world and the deaf clubs are absolutely central to that absolutely there wouldn't be the situation we're in now the much uh, the much better situation we're in now in this country would not have come about without the deaf clubs without the deaf schools initially and then the deaf clubs absolutely categorically 100% double underlined in thick black pen for that for me yeah absolutely and it's interesting that that has survived as the deaf clubs have gone but it shows that the foundations are there and if, in that respect the clubs aren't needed anymore um you know for, for activism because people are active activists anyway yeah that's really interesting right that the clubs declined but the activism to a large extent really has survived that's yeah. that's really fascinating the, the, um, the other thing that's come from that i should just say as well as as the clubs declined the the deaf community splintered it splintered on largely on age grounds. Young people were interested in deaf clubs. They started going to pubs. They started going to clubs. They started doing hearing things. You know, I remember when uh, some of the students at there was a oh it was um what's it called? It's just like flying. Um, Titanic. When Titanic came out, a group of students um, went to the local cinema and asked for. Uh, if they put on a show with a, a, a subtitled showing of Titanic, and it, well, how many? Yeah, we've got a lot of students that will come along, and a lot of students went went along, and they loved it. They'd never been to the cinema before. They loved it. Wow, it's just like bang subtitle, and all this happened. The local cinema. Oh, there's a market here. So one day a week, when there were big films on, they'd put a subtitle, and the whole culture. The whole deaf culture in Preston changed. And because it was making money in Preston, they started doing it in other places. And now they do it all over. And that was from younger deaf people in conjunction with hearing people just wanted to take part in a different... So the clubs are gone. They'd never done that in a club. They'd never shown that film in a club. But the activism, in a very minor way, took off. And that was, again, to, to the... The, the, with this, the, the support and encouragement of people who know how to do these things, the hearing students, because that was one of the things early on. Yeah, we need to do this, but how do we do it? We don't know. You know, we've, we've had this mission or do everything for it and they've gone. What do we need? So it's, it, it's very, very much central to the whole way that, that, that life's changed, even as the clubs have gone, that the sort of, the, 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 the roots are planted deep and, and, and they're, they're beginning to flourish extending that metaphor it's a lovely metaphor <laughs> well done <laughs> we uh we found a fascinating article that you co-authored about oral history methodologies and you've already alluded to some of the challenges with sources in this field right you know a building where records are basically being destroyed alongside the building that sort of thing do you think that um interviews are really gonna need to be a key tool for disability and deaf historians going forward what are your thoughts on that i think they have to be because you're not going to you're not going to get very many written records um even as literacy rates might go up 
Um, I've always said that most people are interested in history until they've got one. So if you don't get anybody young enough, then you're, not, you're possibly not going to get them. But yeah, there's all sorts of challenges. But there's also the, the, the benefits because you can then present some of these histories back to them. As I said earlier, it's a real tension that you can't do that. Um, but I, 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 remember, I, I argued in the article that um, deaf history is oral history because it's not written down. If oral means, you know, if you just say oral is spoken history, no, it's not. But if you take it as anything that's not written down, oral tradition, shall we say, then that's what deaf history is. Because how else are you going to get it? You're only going to get it by going and asking somebody, by sitting down, putting the camera in the corners many times. And, and, and one of the things, the interesting things that came out of that, on all the projects that I've done that I've interviewed people and shown them a video, a video of them, I've always, at the end of it, offered them a copy of the video, because it used to be taped when I started, I'm not old, a copy of the video and a transcript. Nobody ever, only one person ever took a transcript. No interest in me, it's written in English, I'm not interested. There's a bit, oh, I can see, I can see what I said and what was happening, you know, and I can show other people, what am I going to do with the transcript? There's only one person ever asked, and that was a salutary experience because she pointed out a mistake I've made on this thing. I'd missed a very slight, when I, when I transcribed it, it's a good thing she took it, I'd missed a very slight negator in that she'd just done that, as she signed some just a little tiny shake of her head, not even as big as that. And I'd gone, oh, I used, when I used to go here, I used to do this. And what she'd actually signed was, when I used to hear, I never did that. <laughs> but I missed the negator. That was a real, whoops, just that one. Um, yeah, but I think that, that, that the whole idea of taking the, the, the video showed them this is the appropriate medium. They're not interested in this, this paper. It, it means nothing to me. It might as well be in Chinese or whatever. You know, I'm not, I'm not going to read it, but I am going to watch that. Um, so that, that is, it was a justification for, for, for producing stuff in video if you can. Uh, but fortunately, because of the costs involved and everything else, you know, you can't just put it out in video because then it has to be subtitled and you have to have a voiceover. You know? um, I said earlier, I did, I did a history of the school. Well, when I did a history of the deaf school, I put subtitles and I put a voiceover on it. I did put some titles on it because it wasn't technically possible, but I did have, I put a voiceover in it. So I'm voicing over Len, and then I've got other people voicing over people. So I've got female voices for female people. And I remember sitting in my house at home with um, two female students watching a video. They didn't sign, but they had a script in front of them. So I'm tapping them on the one on the shoulder when she had to speak, and then tapping the other when she had to speak, bringing it off just to make it accessible. I mean, very amateurish, but, you know, I'm virtually the same process would be involved in doing it nowadays. This is like 30 years ago, almost 30 years ago. But it just, it's such a challenge. That's the only problem with it. It's great as a resource, but then you've got all the time of transcribing it, making sure it's exactly correct. They haven't missed a little shake of the head. You've got everything exactly right. What the hell is that sign? I knew that sign in context, but I'm not a clue. What's this sign here? I got, I got ripped to pieces once when I was talking about this at a conference. And I said, I, I watched this thing and I, I couldn't work out this sign. So I brought a deaf colleague in and asked him. And he couldn't work it out. So another deaf colleague came. There were seven of us in the end, sat around, watching this little clip, going further forward and further back to get contact. And we finally 
worked out what it was, and it was absolutely no importance at all. But until we worked out what it was, we didn't know it was important. I got ripped to pieces for breaking confidentiality by bringing other people in to watch this thing. And, I th and I'm thinking, yeah, I can understand your point, but how do I ensure accuracy of what that person's told me? All the other people coming don't know that person. You know, they're never going to meet them. It's not any, you know, they're not going to, it's nothing controversial being said at all. It's just one sign that turned out to be one word that didn't mean anything in the context of things, but we had to identify it. And I, I, I was adamant that I'd done the right thing. I, still, I, I still will to this day. Because all the responsibility for putting words in that person's mouth lies with me. So if I have to get other people involved to make sure it's accurate, I will do. Because they're all, you know, they're all bound by confidentiality anyway. They're not going to talk about it. Oh, yeah, I saw this video today and this person said this. And? <laughs> oh, really? That'll be the answer to that, I think. I keep going on my soapbox, don't I? I'm on and off this soapbox today. <laughs> now, your answers are so thorough. So thorough and fascinating. It's really fun listening to you work through work through everything that we're asking. Well, it's, it's, I've been through it a few times. It's, uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> these, things, these things keep coming round and round and round. Yeah. 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 Enjoy the research, yeah. Oh, no, no, three. Oh, I've slept till three o'clock this morning until that question popped into my head. <laughs> well, on, on this topic of some of the really formidable challenges uh, methodologically or ethically when it comes to doing deaf history, you've mentioned a couple of times uh, the, the inaccessibility of deaf histories that are produced and conveyed in written English because this isn't. Mm -hmm an accessible language for all deaf people. Um, so a question that I have that sort of jumps, jumps off of that, what do you think historians should be doing to make sure that their work is more accessible to deaf audiences and to uh, a deaf public? The bottom line is money. If you're writing a research project and cost, you know, putting, costing out the budget, it costs a lot of money to produce. You know, producing something on video is fairly straightforward, but it's all the other stuff, isn't it? It's the subtitling. Who do you get to do the voiceover? Surely you have to get a highly trained and qualified interpreter to do it, unless you're mugging to doing it on your own because it's a little thing for university. But as a, as a commercially available history, and then that costs a lot of money. And that would be a huge budget line at a time when everybody's you know, struggling for money, for research money. You need a very wide open, open-minded funder to look at that because what they're going to say at the bottom line, well, how many people could benefit from this? You know, it's not going to be hundreds of thousands. I think it's a real, real challenge um, to which there's no easy answer, to be honest. Um, and I, I think the way forward is to, do it on small-scale projects, short things, and build from that. Then you can show, look, this is how this, this is how this works. This is how we do. We can learn from that process. Well, for this amount of money, we've produced this. We now want to produce something 
five times longer, but it will cost 10 times the money. But here are the benefits. And you, you've got to persuade people in little steps. You funded that and it was worth it. Now, please fund this. It's going to cost you twice as much because it's worth it. And then next time it's twice as much. So they don't realize next time it's four times as much as it was the first time because it's two and two. You know? um, but I think it's not going to happen soon. Not going to happen soon at all. Um, not if you're going to do it properly. You know, there's, there's been the odd. Um, there was a series in 2000 called Death Century in this country, which was three programs on Channel 4. Um, and I was in, involved on the per periphery of that. Um, and that must have cost a lot of money to produce. Now, just three programs on it for television. It must have cost a huge amount of money. Um, making stuff available that might that doesn't have any commercial commercial um, profit, you know, um, I think that's your, it's a real problem or huge public interest. And you've got to change attitudes first, change attitudes to get the money to do the work, which will then help change attitudes. You know, it's it's chicken and egg almost, isn't it, to some extent? Um, and there's no there's no easy answer to it and no easy solution either. Uh, it's working alongside deaf people will be useful for that to get them involved. But again, you've still got the issue of, of, of money at the bottom, at the bottom end. You've got to work with deaf people anyway, um, but you've still got to be in charge as the person who knows how everything works. And that creates a different tension then. You know, I'm going to be in charge of you telling your history, me telling your history. Well, why? Because it's how it has to be. Do you know how to do this? No, right, okay. You know, that's why I worked so successfully with Len. Len was the figurehead for the school video. Um, used a lot of his research because he'd done a lot of research. We worked together and it worked really well. But ultimately, it was my project because it was my university work um, and it just worked really well. It was, a, it was a really nice, small scale template, but it wouldn't work for a big thing. Really wouldn't work for a big thing. Yeah. No. Yeah, that's really interesting with money essentially being the bottom line, right? And we do what we can, but it will it will be a difficult battle. I was wondering if we could pivot a little bit because as we were doing a little bit of background research on you, FBI style, we oh, <laughs> <smoke and> mirrors. <laughs> <laughs> but we noticed that not all of your work has been focused on the deaf community, of course. You've also, it seems, written a little bit about sports history um, that is not necessarily related directly mm -hmm. to deaf history. And we were wondering, you know, like, tell us more about this. You must be a, a sports fan of some kind, I would imagine, and um, the research interest for you in general. Yeah, fully enough, I've just, just literally yesterday finished another one, another book, um, a sports book, um, uh, which will be coming out very soon. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm interested in lots of sports, particularly primarily football. I have um, been a supporter of Preston North End Football Club uh, for the last 53 years. Um, uh, I, I'm older than I look, believe it or not. Yeah, <laughs> um, I've I've been involved with that, and I've worked for the last 25 now 26 years. I've been the club's official uh, statistician, so I keep all the statistics for the club. So. I've worked with them for the last 26 years and I write for the program and um, I work with the local media, you know, I provide them with information before and after games or I go on 
particularly local radio and, and talk about players or games or events that are coming up. Uh, last season, the club played the became the first team in in the football league to play five thousand league games. So I did lots of background information on that for the club and for media outlets. So I've got yes, I've got that interest, uh, which is why Graham, uh, who was my 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 lecturer way back when he thought I'd be ideal to do the Def United football project, Def football project. Um, so I was involved in that then. Yeah. Um, so yes, I've been involved in that. I'm uh, interested in in cricket. Uh, something you, you may have heard of called rugby league, which is a different version of rugby. Not the not the ones you know. The, there's the uh, Canada. I've got a rugby union team in America. I've got the Eagles rugby union team, but there's a rugby league team, which is a 13 side again, which is um, slightly different. Um, not quite as similar as American football and Canadian football, but uh, basically it started off the same game split. I'm interested in that uh, and other sports. As in when I'm just quite interested in sitting down and watching sport or walking past a field and people are playing some game or other, I'll usually stop and watch for a few minutes and see what they're doing. So, yeah, so I've got a big background in that, I suppose, which um, helps maintain the enthusiasm, I suppose, sometimes for the research. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's, it's all part of the same part, isn't it? Back to the jigsaw analogy again. They're all little bits of the same picture when you put them all together. We also found through our internet sleuthing that you're involved in this initiative called Sporting Memories. And oh, as yeah. someone who used to work in uh, a long-term care facility for elderly people, I found this project just utterly fascinating. So can you tell us a little bit more about what Sporting Memories is and why this is meaningful for you? Sporting Memories is a network that's currently about 300, 350 groups, clubs, call them what you will, around the UK that are involved in sporting memories. I became involved in it about two and a half years ago because uh, somebody I knew got involved in one in Leyland, which is six miles from Preston. Uh, and I went along to that and after a couple of meetings, I thought, we need one of these at Preston North End. We need one at my club. So I got, I contacted the club and they were already knew about it and were working towards it. So I've ended up being the leader of that. I lead the sessions. Um, and the, the Sporting Memories is about reconnecting, re-engaging with people who are living with dementia, depression, and loneliness, either as directly affected themselves or family members, carers, whatever else. Um, and it's using the power of sports to generate memories, to reconnect. And fully enough, it was our second anniversary of the Preston North End Group two days ago, on Tuesday. So it's very opposite that we're talking about it now. Um, and so we, we started in October 2019 and met in a local care home at first, but we outgrew that. So we moved to the football club, the football ground. Uh, we were there for three months and then COVID struck. So we finished in, in March last year and there was a bit of an interregnum. We tried doing things on Twitter and things like that, but it didn't work. Um, and the Leyland group that I started at, they started on Zoom. We'd never heard of Zoom. <laughs> Who'd heard of Zoom two years ago? You know. Um, so they started, they started, they went online on Zoom and I sat down a couple of them. Right, this is us. So we've now been on Zoom since June of last year. Um, and that has certain benefits um, to the extent that we're going to go back to the football club and have face-to-face -face meetings very soon. 
but we're going to continue the Zoom meetings because the Zoom meetings allow people who can't physically get to the football club to take part. So we've with members with a member who lives down in Surrey near London, like 250 miles away. With another guy who lives in the northeast, about 100 miles away. People over in Yorkshire, people in all different places who can then come and be part of this. This this fantastic. We get about 20 people a week, 20 25 people a week on screen. I've had to teach them how to show more than three people or four people at once. Um, but it's brilliant and it's developed a life of its own. And I'm really, really good friends now with people I've never met. I've only ever seen them on screen. But the benefits people get from it, because um, if it's dementia, it, it might trigger a memory. Or it might just be time off with somebody who's curry. You know, they can come along to the face-to-face -face meetings and just not have to worry for an hour and a half because somebody else is going to be looking after their partner, their husband, their wife, whoever it is, and they can uh, take part in that. Um, if it's somebody who's suffering from depression, it lifts them out, it can lift them out of that for a little and show them they're not alone and they're not, you know, there are other people out there. Uh, and people who become lonely without realising it. Being alone can quite often lead to loneliness. Not necessarily, but it can do. So it, it gets away from all that. It helps, helps to counteract some of that. So we have a laugh online, a big laugh. We have a, we have a, a rough rolling programme. So we'll have a guest one week. We'll have a reminiscence session another week where we just pick a topic and talk about things. And we have a quiz. And the quiz, I do the quizzes. The quiz is not aimed at testing knowledge. It's about promoting memories. It's about getting people to think, oh, yeah, I remember that. Blah, 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 blah. And we take the mickey out of each other. You know, we have, we have a laugh at each other. We just run in jokes that come in uh, with people. And it's just a lovely environment. It's, it's supposedly for anybody over 50. We never ask anybody's age. But I'm one of the younger ones at 65. So <laughs> I feel quite good about that. I'm one of the kids. Um, because we couldn't get back into, into there, there isn't a, 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 a suitable room available at the football ground at the moment. Because fully enough, they're using the, the, the lounges in the football ground as courts, as temporary courts, believe it or not. This is, this is a mess we're in in this country. So what we've done, we've set up a walking group on a Thursday morning. We meet at the football ground, and the football ground is right across from a park. So we walk around the park, and it's just to give people a bit of, who want it, a bit of physical company as well, from the people they know from on screen. So I've met some people there that I've never met in person, but I now know them. And they bring people along every week. Other people who are on the Zoom call, oh, my friend's coming on today, his name's Jim. Say hello to him. And it develops a life of its own. So it's, it's really, really good. Really good. We've got um, a national conferences online next Thursday. And that'll be with guests from the world of sport, but also people talking about practical issues, about supporting de depression and dementia uh, and whatever, uh, and tactics they use in the clubs and whatever. So it's, it's useful as well as informative. You know, it's uh, uh, interesting discussion. So, yeah, I'm really, really glad I got involved in it. It's been wonderful to, to be involved in and um, yeah, long way to continue. Oh, I just, I loved hearing about this work, Martin. I loved reading about sporting memories and I loved hearing you speak about it. I didn't realize that you had worked in a long-term care facility, Caroline. 
I also, I volunteered um, in a long-term care facility a couple of years ago on a memory care unit. And it's, mm. it's really fascinating to hear about like what parts of people's lives unlock the strongest memories, mm -hmm. um, focusing on like pleasurable pastimes uh, that might unlock uh, pleasurable memories, like sports mm -hmm. is a great example of that. Um, so it was just really exciting to hear about that. Well, on, on Tuesday's meeting last week, we, we, had a, we had a former player for Preston North End on, who's, who's now a, a radio host of sports programs, and he was brilliant, Jeff, fantastic speaker. And while we're going through that, um, next week's a reminiscence session, and I haven't caught with the topic. And because I've been ill, I've, I've not been thinking about, thinking about it very much. And, and then just the course of it, it mentioned some away game. I thought, oh, that'll do. So at the end of his speech, I said, right, next week, it's a reminiscence session. And we're going to be talking about away trips to sporting events. You know, just going to one. And immediately somebody said, ask Malcolm about the donuts. <laughs> Ping! <laughs> so, so straight up, Malcolm's one, another of the members. And me just said, right, hold that story for next week. Because, you know, the first part we do every week, we have a look back over what's happened in sport for the previous week. And that, again, is, oh, this, anybody see this story about this? And that will lead on to memories that come out. It's not really about this sport. It's about getting people talking. And then we have whatever, it's a guest, a quiz, or it's the reminiscence session. So the next week, then, okay, right. Malcolm, what's this about donuts? And that will start the conversation, which will then snowball. And it's, it's quite interesting. I, I have not a script or an agenda. I have a list every week of things we might want to talk about. And most of the time, it just goes out the window because people take ownership of it and just run with it. And a memory will go there, and then another one will go there, and then another, and then they'll come. And it's just brilliant, absolutely brilliant. And everybody says how much they enjoy it and how much they benefit from it. So it's great. So anything at all, you know, it doesn't have to be sports. It, it can be anything. Just things people get involved in. It can be cinema, theatre, music, anything. God, anything that triggers a memory, you know, um, it get, gets people gets gets people going, and, and they bring things out that they don't. think. The things that have come out for me, just sitting there listening to other people talk. I have thought about that for twenty years. Oh, I remember when I did. Oh, I'm frantically trying to write them down. <laughs> oh yeah, I could throw that in the conversation, but you really don't get much can. But it just then you think, and then that leads to another member and another member. It's, just, it's really, really, really rewarding. I really enjoyed it. And again, so much from it. Again, more that, from it than I put into it. Definitely. Really do. It's brilliant. Yeah. So I look forward to uh, Sporting Memories Canada and Sporting Memories USA. I mean, it sounds like such a phenomenal space. And in person, I'm sure it was very helpful for combating social isolation for people with dementia and depression. During the pandemic, I'm so glad that you all were able to make the transition or conversion onto Zoom and still combat social isolation that was probably compounded by, by the pandemic itself. Um, really phenomenal. I, and it also gives structure to people's week as well something for to look forward to you know it's uh, we, we have one one person who's come along to the face-to-face -face meetings and his wife used to say she used to come along and say guess what time guess what time and i knew i originally knew what she meant 
So we started at 11 o'clock. He'd been ready at nine o'clock that morning. Or the following week, quarter past eight. <laughs> ready. When are we going? When are we going? When are we going? A guy living with dementia. I just so look forward to it and it gave that structure to it. So, yeah, definitely worth doing. Well, I have one final pivot. Uh, we understand that you have a new book um, about deaf history in the 1901 census. And I'm wondering if you can give us just a little bit of a taste of what this new book is about. Uh, this is where the Catholic guilt kicks in now. Promoting yourself. Oh, dear. Oh, no. <laughs> I've not been doing that for the last three days or however long I'm going to um, Yeah, this was, essentially, this is, I've called it a vanity project, but it's not really. This is just something that came into my head about four years ago, and it was an itch I had to scratch. So I did all the research while I was still working, uh, and I got to a point where the research was virtually complete, and I thought, I'm not going to write that now. I'm retiring next year. I'll leave that. And then it took me two years of retirement to find the time to write it. It was only because of the pandemic I found time to write. Um, but it's going back to what I was saying about deaf clubs and why they were important. People couldn't tell me. And I've, I've used the census a lot in recent years. I've done my family tree. I've traced my family tree back to 15 something or other um, in certain branches. So I like using the census and I can interpret the census. And I thought, the 1901 census was the first one that the, the term deaf and dumb was used in the census from the 1841. That's a contentious term, but it serves its purpose. In terms of 1901, it was clearly defined as deaf people without speech. Very clearly defined. So who are deaf people without speech? They are most likely the ones who are going to use their hands. That's my rationale. I mean, not all of them. We don't know. We're back to the big D, little D again. But we can't say they're all sign language users, but they were most likely to be the ones. So that gives you the opportunity then to make some tentative, reach some tentative conclusions about what life was like for deaf sign language users in 1901 from the census. And one of the things I found is you can find out a damn sight more about deaf people 120 years ago than it can now in this country. Because deafness is not a notifiable condition. You don't have to tell anybody. We cannot tell you in this country how many deaf people there are. Never mind how many sign language users there are, because it's a self-identification issue again, isn't it? You know, are you deaf or not? No, just a bit hard of hearing. You know, where do you put that in that box? So um, what I did, I reconstructed, we're back to Northwest again. This is where I live. <laughs> I reconstructed the deaf population in general terms of the whole country. By deaf, I mean deaf and dumb. We'll use that term. So I know how many people are around the country. And then I focused on Lancashire. And I've looked at three things. I've looked at, well, the book is called Living, Learning and Working. So it's population figures, marriage rates, family structures. Then the education, because the, the, the county had three deaf schools more than anywhere else uh, other than London and working, what these deaf people did for jobs, because they're all listed. What sort of jobs they worked in, what sort of social status they had. Um, and then, so I've done that for the whole of Lancashire, in the Northwest County I live in, and then focused down on Preston where I live as a case study. Um, and 
I can tell you who the 33 deaf and dumb people were that lived in Preston. I can tell you exactly where they lived. In fact, for 27 of them, I can take you to the house because they still exist. Um, I can tell you what they did for a living. I can tell you who they lived with, what the family structure was, whether they were married or not. Um, I can tell you lots about them. And for me, the, the whole reason for doing that was to put, again, flesh on the bones. Who are these people? And you can do that. And then there's other things that come out. I found, so I focused on 1901, the census came out in 1901. And I found um, at Manchester Deaf School, the head teacher um, started his job in November 1900. And he kept a journal for a year of everything that went on in the Deaf School. So it covers the, the and I found it in Manchester Central Library. I don't know if anybody's ever looked at it. And the detail it gives you about life in a deaf school is incredible. Incredible. So it's not my words, it's his. So the things they did. Um, education at that time in Britain was compulsory up to the age of 14. You could leave earlier, get a certificate. If you were deaf, you had to go to the 16. You needed longer. But it was interpreted as the day. Your 16th birthday was the day you left school. No matter what time of the year it was, that's when you left. So I find instances of the school being asked by local education authorities to keep a certain pupil back, to keep hold of him when he got to 16. They didn't want him going back to his family because they didn't think they could look after, look after him. They, to stop him going to the bad was the phrase that was used. In another instance, the school asked the local education authority if they could keep the, the child at school. And what they did, they found them jobs. They found them jobs as stonemasons. These are trades. They found them jobs. They didn't ask them. They just told them they were really stonemasons. They found them jobs with the same stonemason as apprentices. They found them accommodation, lodging with the same woman. So they got two men. So they're not going on their own. Now, is that paternalism? Is it philanthropy? Is it control? The thing is, those kids ended up with a better life because of the interference of the school than they would have done. Balance of probabilities, tiny little things like that, you know. So I found, I found out all about the family structures, um, the fact that deaf people were much less likely to, to be married than hearing. But then you look, why is that? Well, where's your deaf partners? Where's your potential life partners? If there's, <coughs> I looked at um, a little town called Chorley, just in south of Preston. There are, there were five, I think it's five, five deaf and dumb men, five deaf and dumb women potentially five partnerships, five marriages. I said, one of them was older. One of them was quite young. Then you look at the ages and at the most is three potential marriages. But then you've got to meet and you've got to get on and you've got, you know. <laughs> so it's not surprising that the marriage rates were so much lower. This simple opportunity where you, there was no death club in the town. So you're not going to meet anywhere like that. You know, there's no going off to football matches to find a good fella. You know, there's none of that. Um, so th there's all sorts of things like that. And you look at the family structures and the fact that they were only deaf person. But then it, you find an example in Burnley where there's three deaf and dumb men living in very close proximity to each other, quite by accident, but they form a little community. They've got social interaction from that just by accident, living in one round the corner and another in the next street. So they, they probably had something like that. You find out about the jobs, the fact that actually, Actually, quite a few were in higher status jobs. 
the predominant industry around here in the 1901 was cotton textile. Cotton textile manufacturers. Less than half of them worked in textile. Less than half of them. They were doing other things. And some of them are actually quite high status jobs. And, and you've looked at their education, so you can challenge things, as we said earlier, about the Milan Congress. No, they were still using sign language in Manchester in 1901, 21 years after Milan. They were still using sign language in Preston in 1901, 21 years after Milan. And it wasn't a hierarchical system. It was a what fits best system. You know, that did change later, but there's all sorts of things you can find out. And I really enjoyed doing it. I'm glad I did. I've got that itch out now. Um, I've, I've self-published it because I really can't be doing with publishers charging a fortune for books. <laughs> but also just, just to get it out. And if anybody bought it, then that was interesting. And they have done. A few people have bought it. So that's nice. Um, mostly former students, but other people as well. Um, and if it gets out and people find it interesting, then that's good. But um, I'm, I now know I can answer that question if anybody asks me. So what was their flight really like in 1901? Well, in this instance, in Lancashire, in Northwest England, and particularly in Preston, this is what it was like. And I found all sorts of issues with methodology issues with using the census as a consequence, which were useful for other people as well. So um, I just, I enjoyed doing it. Sounds that, you know, I understand the pressures that you might feel to publish, but um, I, I saw it was time off, not, another, <laughs> not yet another job I have to do. But I can say that now I'm retired. Can't. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, it, it sounds like a brilliant book and uh, maybe you'll get a few more book sales. Oh, brilliant, brilliant. Well, and you've certainly convinced me of the value of sort of drilling down deeply into a community and getting a sense of how death life was lived. So that's really exciting. Martin, I have to say it has been an absolute pleasure to get to know you today through this podcast. So thank you very much for your time. Thank you very much for having me. I really enjoyed myself. It's been uh... It's, 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 it's been a, a, a pleasure to uh, talk about my work and, and find people interested, but also to hopefully to encourage other people to do similar things because there's lots of work out there that needs doing. Yeah. Thank you very much. I've really enjoyed myself. Thank you so much, Martin. You're welcome. <laughs>